Welcome back to The Jay Martin Show. My guest today is crowd favorite and founder and CEO of The Macro Compass, Alfonso Picciello. And as always, right beneath this piece of content, there's a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday and I love writing it. I'd love to have you join the team. All right, here's Alfonso, enjoy. Okay, here I am with Alfonso Picciello. Alfonso, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for making the time. Jay, every time you call me, my answer is yes. Here we are. <laughs> I like that. So let's start with um, something we were just discussing before I hit record. You said there are two forces uh, at play right now combating each other in the market. One are the recession pressures, and the other is uh, the, the opening of China, right? Right. Global massive economy about to open back up again. So talk to me about this. So there are two main forces in the market, right? There is a pull force and a push force against it. And the pull force is the gravitational heavy force of a global recession, which markets are starting to appreciate a bit more. The push force against it is that the second largest economy in the world has all of a sudden reopened, that's China. And not only that, Jay, but China in 2022 tried to boost and stimulate the economy, but it was unsuccessful because people were locked home for most of the year. That means that savings and the stimulus that has been thrown at consumers is now ready to be spent. And that acts as a booster, basically, of the reopening already. China is the second largest economy in the world by size, and you're reopening all of, the, all of a sudden. And the market is a bit confused, let's say. You can see it in, in different pricing in different asset classes. You have the bond market, and the bond market is focusing on that disinflationary recession coming ahead. You have bond deals coming down pretty aggressively in Europe, in the US, everywhere you look at, actually. And then you have the equity market, on the other hand. And you're seeing these cyclical equity sectors doing very well. You're seeing the European equity market doing very well. Hey. Why are we not going in a global recession? Normally, Europe doesn't do very well in a global recession. But Germany is the largest trade partner of China. So if China reopens and it's boosted by the stimulus as well from 2022, fading into the economy in 2023, then Germany does well, then Europe does well. So you have this dichotomy of pricing, this dichotomy of push and pull force. And I think that's the dominant narrative in the market right now. So are you saying that you, you suspect that European equities are performing well uh, on Chinese expectations. That's correct. So you can see that Chinese spillover going through several asset classes. You can see that in cyclical uh, related regional equities. So Korea, Thailand, all these proxies in Asia for China are doing extremely well this year. So that's basically the Chinese reopening spilling over to these regions. Germany is one of the largest trade partners of China. So if China reopens and there is demand coming from China, then probably German companies will do well for the time being. Mm. But again, that's a cyclical push force. It helps cyclically to boost some growth in these regions. Don't forget though, and don't miss the forest for the trees. There is a global nominal growth slowdown. So both a growth slowdown, but an inflation slowdown as well that keeps working in the background 
while we have this cyclical push reopening coming from China. And where does this global force comes from? The global recessionary force. You have to think of markets and economy being the reflection, the lagged reflection of monetary and fiscal policy. So let me make an example. The market in 2021 was exuberant. We had crypto assets, we had high beta equity assets, uh, companies trading at 100 times earnings in the equity space. We had all that very much dot-com bubblish market exuberance in 2021. And why, Jay? Because the market in 2021 was the lagged reflection of the massive monetary and fiscal stimulus of 2020. Now go to 2022 and the beginning of 2023. Those markets will reflect the tight monetary policy and the tight fiscal stance that was applied in the beginning of 2022 when the Federal Reserve started hiking rates. Yeah. And when the government said, I'm sorry, guys, no fiscal stimulus anymore, we are done. And that translated seven, 12 to 15 months later into a much weaker market. So markets and the economy are, in most cases, the lagged reflection of monetary and fiscal policy um, conditions with a nine to 12 months lag. So 2023 will be the reflection of very tight monetary policy, very tight fiscal policy that has been applied for most of 2022 by global central banks and global governments. Can I ask you a question about that, Alfonso? I'd love to know how, you know, are there two other forces at play in the markets? So it makes absolute sense that markets would lag fiscal policy by a couple quarters. Logically, that makes sense. You could maybe make the argument that markets price in Fed policy before it occurs. Mm -hmm. Now, are those two forces combative as well? Or what do you think about that? That's a great question. So markets, in the, for example, right now, the bond market is highly challenging the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve is saying 5% federal funds rate for the next year, two years, we are never going to cut rates. Forget about it. The bond market is saying, yeah, no, not really. You are going to actually give in to recessionary forces. You are going to cut rates. The bond market is pricing the following, Jay. It's pricing inflation to fall to 2.5% over the next eight months. I want to repeat it because spot inflation today is over 6%. And the bond market is pricing that inflation falls to 2.5% by late summer. That's extremely rapid as, yeah. as a decline in inflation. Together with it, it's also pricing lower growth. And that's reflected in lower yields. It's, it's reflected in the number of cuts being priced. The bond market is pricing 200 basis points of cuts by the Fed in a year and a half to two years. That's almost consistent with the recession. So the market is pricing a high probability of a disinflationary recession. And therefore it's pricing the Fed to basically um, cave to these recessionary forces and to cut rates. Doing that, coming back to your question, the market is also loosening financial conditions preemptively because it's anticipating future Fed cuts, Jay. Those are reflected in bond yields today, which means they're reflected in the borrowing rates that we companies actually have to endure. If I take mortgage rates as an example, the bond market rally over the last three months has reduced mortgage rates by over a percentage points, which means that mortgages are cheaper now than they were three months ago. That means the housing market can kind of maybe take a breather, right? So it gets reflected already. It's true. The problem again is 
that the market and the economy today is a lagged reflection of the prevailing monetary and fiscal conditions nine to 12 months ago. What I'm saying is that we'll have to go through some pain still as the lagged reflection of this tighter monetary and fiscal condition before the diseasing in financial conditions can work its way through the economy in 2024 for a potential rebound. Interesting. Okay, there's there's so many threads there that I want to pull on. Um, maybe the first one is here. Just what's your what are your thoughts, if you have any, on you mentioned the bond market is pricing in inflation to drop to two and a half percent within eight months. So that sounds aggressive. Uh, would that have anything to do with the Fed adjusting the methodology for calculating CPI? And do you put much bearing on that? Because there's some, you know, commentators right now that are sort of, you know, waving flags saying that this is this is very suspicious. But what do you, what do you think? <laughs> so let me let me tell you a bit by experience, um, Jay. Let me first give the log line. The log line is the Fed will not stop tightening until inflation is at two percent. Mm -hmm. Not three, not four, not three and a half, two percent. And now let me tell you why I'm pretty confident with that call. In my previous job, I was, I had the luxury of running a very large amount of money for an institution, which means that I had access to policymakers, to central bankers, to governors, etc. And when you talk to them, Jay, what all these central bankers want and care about is to be credible, is to maintain credibility with markets is to keep the status quo. The Federal Reserve has a target of inflation at 2%. And they are not going to change materially the way inflation is calculated. They are not going to change their mandate to 3%. And why? Because the first step to regain the massive hit and to regain credibility, which was largely hit, is to get inflation to 2%. It's a bit like being a striker in, a, in Real Madrid or in Barcelona and your task is to score a goal, right? I mean, you are a striker in a large team, football club. If you don't score for 10 matches in a row, you're not going to ask to move the goalpost close to you. That's not how it works. You still have to hit your objective to gain credibility, right? With the fans, with the trainer. The same story goes with the Federal Reserve. They need to achieve 2% inflation. They will not change the way inflation is calculated. They will not change their, their mandate. Their only objective is to regain credibility. They are even willing, and I'm quoting themselves. I mean, Powell in Jackson Hole in August last year told us that unfortunately, households will need to go through some pain. And those are the unnecessary consequences that come with bringing inflation down to 2%. So they're saying we're willing to see some pain in the labor market and the economy, as long as we are able to bring inflation down to 2% to regain our credibility. That's how strong their commitment is right now. They've been so wrong for so long on inflation. They don't have an alternative. They need to get inflation back to 2% at basically whatever cost. Mm. And so you wouldn't factor this, their shift in how they're calculating CPI as a change in how they're calculating inflation? You don't see it as relevant? No, not much. I mean, there are obviously changes in how CPI is calculated, but that's just a basket adjustment. So how CPI is calculated at the end of every year, it's basically with a statistical methodology that looks, Jay, at where is the spending coming from the median household, right? I mean, they look at a basket of, um, of spending coming from the median household. And clearly, yeah. through the pandemic, with opening and, and close, closing down the economy, we've gone through 
quite some shifts. We have spent a lot more in goods during the pandemic because we were locked home. Then we have reopened. So we have stopped spending on goods also because prices have gone, have gone up materially. And then we have started spending on services because we needed the services once the economy reopened. So all these adjustments are reflected in the composition of the inflation basket, which is regularly updated. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not something that the Fed, first of all, the Fed doesn't have direct control uh, on, on those metrics. Those are coming from uh, basically the statistic department of the government from that perspective. And the Fed, well, my message is the Fed is not going to actively try and move the goalpost. They are not going to do that because to regain credibility, you need to get your objective done, which is inflation at 2%. And that's all they're focused on at the moment. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. So I want to pull on another thread here. You discussed uh, easing rates possibly by 2024, fueling some kind of a rebound, if I heard that correctly. So would that be counter to some of the more bearish decades-long recession forecasts that we're hearing from uh, people like uh, David Rosenberg and, and so forth? What do you think? I love this. You know, market commentators are always so colorful. Decade-long <laughs> recession. Holy crap. I mean, let's give some statistics here, Jay. Yeah, the US yeah. has not been in a recession, barring the exogenous pandemic shock. The US has not been in a recession for 15 years, Jay. It's since 2008 that the US hasn't experienced a recession. I mean, you think about it, it's incredible. Like, a recession is defined not with two quarters of negative GDP growth, but the real definition of a recession comes with profits declining from a corporate perspective, so earnings shrinking rather than growing, and job losses. This is a recession. It's when people get unemployed and companies don't make money anymore. That's the definition of a recession. Of course, this goes and feeds into um, negative GDP growth, which exposed is used as one of the metrics by the NBER to define a recession. But the recession starts with negative earnings growth and negative um, job growth, so job losses, people getting fired. The US hasn't had such a case in 15 years. Now, saying there's going to be a 10-year long recession, I think it's pretty much of a bold call. But I think there is going to be a recession. Yes, there is going to be one. Um, my expectation is that a recession starts May, June 2023. And again, that means job losses. That's how I define a recession. That means non-farm payrolls in the US turning to zero or negative. That's really a recession, right? And I expect that to happen. Um, how bad of a recession? That's another important question for markets. How long and how bad of a recession? And if you look at different forward-looking indicators, you know, the answer there is pretty straightforward. The tightening in 2022 has been very large, very rapid, very intense. Borrowing rates have gone up rapidly. The housing market has come to a freeze effectively. Uh, Overleveraged companies are having issues. The crypto market was under carnage. The tech market, which has enjoyed 0% interest rates for so long and a lot of tailwinds, all of a sudden faced a lot of headwinds all at once. So if you look at the rate of change, how negative and how tough this negative impulse was, you should expect that the recession will not be shallow. Just based on this lagged impact, you should expect that the recession will not be shallow. Obviously, when a recession comes, it's easy now for the Federal Reserve to say, we're going to keep rates at 5% forever. But when people start losing their job, and when inflation starts coming down, 
ultimately there is no reason for them anymore to choke the economy that aggressively. How the cycle works is when the Federal Reserve starts cutting rates, validates market expectations, there is some relief. But at the same time, during the recession, companies are losing money. People are getting fired, Jay. So the first thing they do is not they go and buy stocks, but they try and look for another job or they become much more risk averse. Mm -hmm. So there is that phase that will probably last through the entire 2023. But there will be a point where there is a lot of pain which has already gone through the economy. There's a lot of pessimism already in all asset classes, precious metals, stocks, anything. And there has been quite some accommodation from central banks done already for maybe four to six months. And that is the point where you can start feeling a bit more comfortable with the stock market going up again, with the economy feeling better again. I think that doesn't start earlier than the first or the second quarter of 2024. So what I really don't like here is instead people saying that this is going to be soft landing, that the worst is behind us, that we are done, because I don't see the, the positive impulses that will be required for the economy to restart and for market sentiment, that bullish sentiment to restart right where we are today. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And you pointed to the handful of factors that were entering bubble territory simultaneously popping, so to speak. One that you sort of hinted at, I think it's worth talking about, is the real estate market. It's the largest yeah. asset class in the world. Um, so if we're in trouble there, we're in trouble everywhere. Now walk me through what you're seeing in the housing market, Alfonso. First, yes, it is the largest asset class in the world. And this surprises many. But let me give you some figures. The real estate market globally, summing residential and commercial real estate, is bigger than the bond market and the equity market combined. This is a staggering statistics, if you ask me. It's really huge. And it's also very leveraged, and it's very um, prone to changes given, given changes in interest rates and in mortgage rates. We are seeing exactly that right now, Jay. The housing market is under a complete freeze, and I expect house prices to drop by 20 25% over the next 12 to 18 months in many jurisdictions. Canada, the US, Australia, Europe, the numbers should be between 15 and 25% drop over the next 12 to 18 months. That's quite a number. But again, in context, it brings house prices back to roughly the beginning of the pandemic in terms of prices. So you'll be basically canceling down the excesses. That's it. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. You're right. That's a, that's a short-term correction. You hear 15, 25% um, discounts on housing. That sounds massive. And then you're like, well, actually... That just pulls us back to 2020. <laughs> That's correct. It is yeah. still a very large drawdown because the net wealth of people and how they feel about it is very influenced by the rate of change. So although it just brings us back to house prices that were prevalent in the beginning of 2020, people will be feeling the heat because their second house will be worth 25% less than they thought it, it was worth, right? That has obviously a spillover effect as well on spending and on how you feel about your wealth, how you feel mm -hmm. about your balance sheet, right? Definitely. The rate of change is important. But again, to put it in context, it just brings us back to the beginning of 2020. Now, let's talk about the, where do we are in the housing market decline cycle. Where we are is exemplified by a news that came out yesterday, uh, so basically 19th of January, where we got KKR, which is one of the largest real estate investors in the world, um, freezing 
redemptions from clients. So effectively clients that have invested in the real estate fund. So the KKR real estate fund goes and buys commercial real estate, housing, blah, blah, blah. These guys now can only redeem, I think four or 5% of their investment per quarter. So if you want your money back, Jay, nope, I'm sorry, you can't. And KKR follows uh, Blackstone. The mm. Breed story, the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, which is a $70 billion worth real estate fund, has applied gates on redemptions as well a couple of weeks ago. That's right. So That's where do right. we stand? Basically, these gigantic real estate companies are already seeing and touching with their bare hands that the market is definitely not where it's quoted today. So if you would try to offload your property today, you probably have bad news coming. It's not where it, the price is not where you think it is. Yeah. What's the way for them to keep their accounting price the same is to make sure you don't have outflows, is to make sure that you don't need to sell these houses. Because if people withdraw their money from the real estate fund, then you're, you're forced to sell your assets as well. And when you're forced to sell your assets, you need to recognize the losses that are there that will be pretty large. So one way to try and stop the bleeding is to force people in, to lock them in and say, ah, you can't get your money out anymore. So we are not forced to recognize our losses. That's the stage where we are. Now, obviously, this is just a temporary fix and it's not going to work because it's like there is so much pressure that is brewing from a selling perspective and a price drawdown perspective in the housing market. There is going to be release valves. You cannot stop this from happening. Yeah, okay. There's going to be selling regardless if it's from BlackRock, whoever. Yeah. Whoever is going to be there, who he, he will need to offload their assets. And yeah. you can only delay this for as much. But at some point, there will be somebody who's really a force seller. And when this starts, then it generates a cascade of people saying, oh, my God, so the prices are 20% lower than I thought they were. I should probably sell down my second house because it's not worth what I think it was. My job is in danger because the economy is slowing down. I need yeah. equity, which is still in that house because maybe I bought it three years ago. So it's still in the money. I really need to lock in that equity because I need it as a precautionary saving. And this starts actually a cascade of selling, which lowers prices. That's what I was curious about. Yeah. Would there, do you expect like a catalyst or a trigger moment that begins that, that cascade of selling and therefore prices? Yeah. The second question on that is who's the buyer? Could you identify like who's going to come to the market? That's a great question. So the two catalysts, potential catalysts. The first is a large institutional investor who's forced to sell, who cannot postpone this, basically. Either he has a margin call or he's too much leverage or he's breached his risk parameters, whatever, but a forced institutional investor, one or many. So that's the first catalyst. The second catalyst is households that are losing their jobs. So every time you have tried to see correlations on, on, on this, you'll realize that when people lose their secure source of income and they have a, an untapped source of equity somewhere else, let's say housing, for instance, they'll try to use that. Um, so those are the two catalysts. If the job market would weaken materially and or if institutional investors would be forced to sell. I think we are talking when, not if, Jay. That's the main point. So we can try and postpone this for maybe a couple of months, but ultimately okay. it's going to show up. Actually, in some districts, like in some places in Canada, house prices are down already 10% plus from their peak. And in Australia, they're also down 15% plus from their peak. So you can see that the, fro the most frothy markets, Jay, already can't hide this anymore that much. 
because more frothy markets means more leverage, more institutional investors involved in these kind of trades, more households, more leverage than involved in the trade. So the hurdle to cave in is, is lower, right? But you are going to see this as a widespread phenomenon in the second half of this year, for sure. Interesting. And uh, okay, yeah, a couple of questions. I mean, in my neighborhood, my audience hears me talk about this all the time, so they're probably bored to death about it. But you know, I live in a suburb just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, which is world renowned as being a highly speculative and super hot real estate market. I mean, decades long at this point, um, and subject to some of these gross corrections because of how hot it runs. Um, and the town that I live in, Squamish, which is between Vancouver and Whistler, it's 45 minutes outside of the city, little mountain town, 19,000 people. There's something like 2,200 new units scheduled to come online in the next couple of years. And so I'm very curious because this is one of those towns that's like, you know, it's 20,000 people, 40 minutes outside of Metropolis. It got that COVID rush. I mean, um, you know, I've got a couple of properties here that my principal residence shot up like 70% you know, in 18 months because of how many people were flooding in here, leaving Vancouver, trying to get out of the city, right? And so, you know, it's a 25-year bet for me. It's like my family home. I'm not too worried about what the price is. To be honest with you, it doesn't matter to me. Got a good fixed rate. But um, I'm very curious to see how this town performs because there's so many towns like this one, right? Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, um, uh, Austin, Texas, like so many boom towns in the last 18 months that I'm very curious yeah. uh, how this plays out. Interesting. Yes, and I have to say this, small illiquid towns are probably subject to some uh, bad news. But again, the log line there is the housing market is at the stage where investors are freezing and locked in basically by large liquid real estate funds. They're trying to keep them in, not to recognize the losses. So basically you have so much pressure, which is brewing and soon it's gonna come to the surface. It's just a function of mortgage rates, to be honest, Jay. You asked me about the buyer. Who's the buyer? Nobody is the buyer. That's the, and not at these prices. 20, 25% lower, I can see buyers coming in, both right. from a household perspective, because the price is so low, and therefore, even if mortgage rates are higher, at least from, a, from an equilibrium perspective, yes, higher mortgage rates, but the price is 20% lower. So I can, the affordability basically improves. Yeah. Or it's institutional investors that can invest in this repackaged mortgages, uh, these yes. structured securities, but they need to be much cheaper than what they are today. That makes sense. Because that's what I'm wondering. When you watch these exercises play out, a super hot, frothy, speculative market, prices run away, retail enters. I mean, pick your asset class. We've seen this rodeo a thousand times. Real estate's just one. Then there's the correction and some strategic, yeah. somewhat predatory investor comes in and scoops up that corrected prices and you see this redistribution of the wealth gap and assets as a consequence, right? And it's just like rinse and repeat. Okay, I know you got to fly pretty soon. So you just flag me if you got to go, Alfonso. I want to get your thoughts on the precious metals market and the base metals market. Yeah. Um, and when you got to go, just let me know because I'll probably keep you as long as you'll stay. But um, so where do you want to start? Precious metals, base metals, love to get your thesis. Let's, right do, let's do base metals first. All right. So All right. we're talking copper, aluminum, zinc, and that kind of stuff, right? Industrial metals. Um, I am pretty positive on those uh, over the next two to three months. Okay. Uh, reason why? Um, China in one yeah. big world. Right. So we're talking about the second largest economy in the world reopening with pent-up stimulus, pent-up demand, and one of the largest consumers of these um, commodities. On top of it, we're talking about China trying to backstop their uh, housing market. 
they have cleaned up the excesses. They feel like that they have cleaned up the excesses. Um, same for the tech sector and the housing market. There were there was a massive clamp down by the, um, the Chinese Communist Party in 2021 and 2022. That's done. Now they're trying to do the opposite. They're trying to restore a little bit some confidence in that market and infrastructure. So you really need industrial metals um, from a Chinese perspective both to restart your economy and to support your infrastructure real estate market. Uh, I think these metals are looking good here. Uh, also, from a supply perspective, Jay, you can sell oil from the strategic petroleum reserve, both in China and in the US. I mean, if you don't want oil prices to spike, they have some reserves that they can sell. The supply of these metals is not so easy to adjust, let's say, uh, as it is for the supply of oil, for instance. So that makes me pretty bullish on the price because demand will be strongly cyclically going up and supply is pretty inelastic in the short term, effectively. So I like base metals. Uh, short term again, and we're talking two to three months because don't forget the big picture. We are slowly walking into a recession and normally a recession is where global demand slows down. So China is the opposite push force, which is going to be exhausted at some point. Eh? I mean, in the next three to six months, at some point, this push force is going to get exhausted. But in the meantime, I like base metals. Precious metals. Oh God, this has been interesting. So gold doesn't work as people thought it would. Uh, it hasn't hedged inflation. Let me call it like that, right? We had one of the biggest inflationary spikes for the last 40 years and gold hasn't really delivered a lot of performance, right? There is a reason why. Gold is non-interest bearing money that you cannot, whose supply cannot be easily expanded. That's what gold is. So gold is competing with our monetary system. That's what it is. It's an asset which is competing with our monetary system. So gold does well when our monetary system does not reward money. And when is that the case, Jay? When nominal yields are very low, 0%, 1%, inflation is running at 2 Well, you're basically losing money, holding the fiat form of money. The competitor, therefore, does very well. That's gold. Because that's an alternative non-interest-bearing form of money, and you can't expand the supply. Let's have a look at 2022. 2022, you had the Federal Reserve telling you, and all central banks in the world, telling you, I am going to temporarily reward you a lot on this fiat money. I'm going to raise rates to 4%, 5%. Yes, inflation was 6, 7, 8. But it was also, from an expectation perspective, very well anchored that inflation would slow down to 3 over time. So basically, you had a cash return, a nominal return of 4 to 5%, and inflation expectation in the long term, pretty anchored around three. So you were rewarded long-term on an expectation basis to own cash, dollars, euros. On top of it, the supply of these dollars, the supply of these euros was not expanding anymore, Jay. It was actually collapsing. Governments had said, no fiscal stimulus. I'm not going to produce new dollars. I'm not going to keep printing these dollars and these euros in 2022, they literally stopped doing that, which means the supply here doesn't expand anymore. So you have two supporting factors, temporarily speaking, yeah? supporting factors for the fiat world, and gold doesn't do very well. Let's, let's look through 2023, 2024. Central banks will be forced to cut interest rates if we walk into a recession. 
that helps gold. Because again, on a competitive basis, you are not rewarding dollars and euros so much anymore. You're cutting rates back to 2%, 1%, et cetera. On top of it, if you walk into a recession, it's to be expected that governments and central banks will be forced again to stimulate the economy somehow. So the supply of these dollars and these euros will go up again, both positive factors for gold. Again, gold as any asset needs to be looked at through cycles. And 2022 was a cycle where both defining factors for gold were negative. If you look at the second half of 2023, the first half of 2024, I think you're going to find, again, both factors to be very supportive. The supply of fiat money will again go up. And the rate of interest that you get for owning this fiat money will marginally decline. Both of these factors are supportive for the competitor of fiat money, which is gold. So I expect gold to do well in the second half of 2023 and in the beginning of 2024. So from a commodity perspective, first off, I have a preference for industrial metals, actually for the next three months. And after that, slowly but surely, I will have a preference for precious metals instead. Interesting. Okay, now let me ask you one quick question here. So dialing back to 2020, right? We saw massive global uncertainty, obviously, right? Show-stopping headlines every day. We saw massive stimulus. We saw rates fall, but gold had a very short-lived rally. You know, very shortly after that, gold went flat, gold equities went flat, right? Yeah. And all the speculative growth stocks took off. So talk to me about that picture. What was missing at that point? Was it the inflation numbers? Why would, why would this pivot be different for the gold price? So that makes sense? Does my question makes sense. It does. It does. It does. Right. What, what, and that's why I said only later in the second half of 2023, I expect gold to do well, not in the time being as we walk into a recession. The okay. problem is that gold is uh, also a financial weapon or a financial asset. And so people own gold, they trade gold, especially via futures. That's important because if there is a lot of negativity in markets and there are a lot of rapid drawdowns in equity markets in the bond market, people are margin cold. So if they have leverage and they go down, their broker will go and say, hey, you need to post margin here. Now, in that case, in order to survive, Jay, you'll be selling any asset you have to raise cash and cover your margin calls. You'll also be selling gold. And that's basically gold being involved in the financial world as well. Gold is used as an asset to raise money when things are really, really bad. When there are margin calls, gold unfortunately gets caught in that event. So effectively, you need, in order for gold to have all the possible tailwinds, in that case, in 2020, you needed to wait all the way to the end of 2020. And then gold in 2021 had a very good year, right? Um, especially in the first half of 2021. Why? Because that deleveraging period was gone, it was over. The Federal Reserve had already accommodated uh, as, as much as they could for already a while. So these conditions had fed in the market. And fiscal stimulus was working its way through the economy. So the supply of newly created dollars was working its way through the economy. The accommodation from the Fed was working its way through the financial sector and the economy. And the deleveraging episode was already behind us. This is the perfect setup for gold. When are we going to see that? If you go into a recession, you're going to get equity drawdowns, margin calls, deleveraging. That should happen over the next six to nine months. That's not yet the period when to buy gold. 
The Federal Reserve is going to cut rates a bit later in this cycle. They're going to be very stubborn. Remember that 2% inflation target, they really want to make sure that they're getting there. They're going to be a bit stubborn. So they're going to start cutting rates later, which means only later on, this is going to get reflected in financial conditions and in the economy and in markets. Fiscal stimulus also will come a bit later in this cycle. And that's why I expect gold to start doing really well only towards the end of 2023. While right now, I would rather prefer having industrial metals if I had to choose a commodity for my book. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Got it. Alfonso, thank you for coming back on the show. It's always great chatting with you. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Jay. It's my pleasure. I want to point people to your new, your new venture. So where can we send them, Alfonso? I know you're just oh. launching. You know, your content's great. You're launching a new platform now. I want to send people sure. your way. Where should we put, point them? So that's on the macro compass, as you can see over there. Uh, that's the symbol of the platform. And the Macro Compass is a platform where people get access to macro insights in the form of reports. They're regularly sent. They cover economic and market developments. But most importantly, they get actionable portfolios and trade ideas. So we not only talk the talk, but we walk the walk. We allocate ETF portfolios so that people can see literally what do we own, why do we own it, when do we change our mind. Finally. We do courses, so it's also an educational platform to walk people through our monetary system, our credit system, portfolio management, risk management, and we publish interactive tools. So they can also play, test around, see what's happening in the world, and get themselves through this macro learning journey. Jay, it's so necessary for the next five to seven years. Things have changed. Buying stuff and going to sleep is probably not going to be as an effective strategy as it was for the last 10 years. Getting educated in macro is actually a good thing to do. It's an investment in yourself. And we try to help you doing that and also give you portfolios and trade ideas along the road. It's on the macrocompass.com. I love that. I think you're bang on with the timing too. Okay, look, I appreciate this. Um, best of luck and we'll chat again soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Jay. Talk soon. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.